are listening to Weird, Obscure, Impossibly Unsafe. Melissa. Not much. Um, I've been watching some horror movies lately. Which ones? Really? Just lately? Just especially now. (laughs) And by lately, you mean your entire life? My entire life, but more so, I've been really getting into it. A lot of them. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So. (laughs) I've been doing a lot of. Sorry, guys. It's been a long day, yep. I guess. I've, I've never seen you laugh so hard that you've cried. Really? Yes. Oh, well. I mean, I've seen you laugh really hard, but that was <laughs> a whole new level. I don't know why. It was just so funny to me that you said you've been getting into it. And yes. I just don't know. Get, taking a deep dive. So, what does that mean? Um, well, I kind of meant that i just been doing a lot of looking up a lot of horror movies, listening to a lot of horror movie podcasts to get recommendations, and then actually going out and watching them. Okay. So really immersing um, yourself yeah. in Yeah. Which goes in like phases. I think Halloween time is one of those times where I really horror movie it up and then I have to take a break because there's just so many that I kind of overdo it and then now I'm kind of back back in the swing. And gotcha. then And then you got the new year. Yeah. Oh yeah. New oh, yeah. year, new horror movies. That yes. wasn't that wasn't, didn't come out right. <laughs> yes, but it, it works. Um, but one movie I watched that I really liked was called Little Monsters, um, and it it stars the Lupita Nyong'o from. Um, she's one of the main characters in This Is Us, and basically this movie is she's Wait, a, This Is Us or Us? Us. Oh, thank you. Us, not This Is Us. Yeah. I was saying those are two totally different. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Jordan Peele's Us. Yeah. Um, and basically, yeah, Yeah. she was really great. She's so awesome. She's the star of that whole thing. Um, but yeah, she's basically just a kindergarten teacher who takes her kids to a field trip and then the zombie apocalypse outbreak happens. Um, and it's just how she keeps the kids alive. It's pretty fun. Hmm. Yeah. It's on Hulu. We'll have to check that out. Yeah. Anna Marie, what's going on with you? Um, well, with the new year, of course have to start some new goals um and i am very determined to finally achieve one of those goals um which is to read 30 books which is not really that ambitious but i'm aiming low in one year read 30 in one books? yeah oh okay that's, so, a, that's a lot of books i i mean i i guess yeah i guess it could, could be i mean i can count the number of books i read last year on half a hand <laughs> <laughs> fair so okay maybe maybe it's not as ambitious as i originally thought but um so jake and i have actually been both doing a lot of reading uh and we started goodreads our brains are getting so big yeah my neck's starting to hurt (laughs) oh oh my gosh got your big brains working (laughs) kind of working um yeah, so it's really just been actually a lot of that. I've read like four books so far, and it's what? been three weeks into oh the year. How did you do this? 
And you only have know. to read 30, you can do it. Well, okay, so I'm starting off strong, but I guarantee that I will taper off pretty soon, probably. Okay. But yeah, so that's that's been a lot of what's been going on yeah. lately. Neat. What about you, Jake? Well, my New Year's resolution was to make no resolutions. And um, so far I've done really well. I'm kind of had a sort of de facto dry January. Just, oh, I, I was just, doing that I, I until yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> well, I didn't. I didn't mean to. It just kind of happened. Oh. Um, but yeah, I'm doing the reading thing, and I figured out the the secret to reading lots of books is to pick skinny books. Yes. So, <clears throat> I've read four really skinny books. And you know, I have a lot of books like Bart Simpson's Guide to Life. <laughs> if you need something <laughs> quick. <laughs> Excellent. That's really good. I think I had that. I got it from one of those scholastic book fairs. Yeah, I thought it was so great. Yeah, amazing. So, yeah, we're coming back here. I just gotta say sorry to you for having to edit all this, because apparently today I have the giggles. (laughs) Yeah. Pretty hard. Yeah. So, anyways, Melissa, what are you talking about today? Um, Today I'm talking about the Celtic mythological creature... The Kelpie. And you guys say Celtic or Celtic? Or is it like Celtic basketball team? Is it Celtic? I always said Celtic basketball team, Celtic mythology. Okay. We're going with Celtic. Yeah, I don't... I'm not sure what the correct way is. I'm going to say that quite a few times, so I didn't want to get it completely wrong. Um, Okay. So, the Kelpie is a mythological, shape-shifting water spirit that's been known to inhabit the locks and pools of Scotland... Um, Usually it looks like a horse, but it's able to adopt a human form. Um, Historian Douglas Harper defines the Kelpie as the lowland name of a demon in the shape of a horse. Um, It's the most common water spirit in Scottish folklore, but there may be variations um, on the story throughout the country, depending on like the little clans and things. Um, Before I go any further, though, I forgot to mention that my sources are mythology.net, an article by (laughs) Professor Geller. Um, I also listened to an episode of Spirits Podcast. They have an episode on this. Um, And also Wikipedia. Really relied on that. Good old Wikipedia. Tried and true. Old reliable. Mm -hmm. Um, Let's see, where was I? I heard the other day that Wikipedia has less mistakes than a lot of print encyclopedias. Wow, that's amazing. Wow. I heard that on Astonishing Legends, by the way, to cite my sources. Oh, nice. Good job. Good memory. Good memory. Well done. In the late 19th (laughs) century, uh, many historians were interested in transcribing folklore. um, So that's where they really discovered that this is a really common story, but there are a lot of variations in different parts of the country. um, And a lot of different spellings, too, of the same type of spirit. Um, so Kelpies are generally thought to live beside rivers, though some think they can also be found near lakes as well. Um, and some just kind of generalize, like, any body of water, you can find a Kelpie. So the, do they live, like, near the water or in the water? So you come across one when it's out of the water, but it's always going to be near a body of water. Okay. And they do reside in the water itself. So they're amphibious. Yes, but shape-shifting so it's hard to say what they actually look like when they live in the water but we'll get to what they look like can they climb trees no oh because they're a horse (laughs) maybe when they're in human form i mean yeah i guess i was trying to envision a horse climbing a tree and it didn't end well so Mm. okay 
Makes sense. Hooves hooves don't really have traction up a tree. The Kelpie of Scottish folklore has strong parallels to other um, similar spirits like the Bacostan of Scandinavian folklore um, and a lot of similarities with the Win-Win of Central America and the Australian Bunny Yip. Um, The Win-Win is a malevolent water spirit associated with um, the Miskito tribe of Central America. And the bunny yip is a large mythological creature um, from Aboriginal mythology that is said to lurk in swamps, billabongs, which apparently that's a thing. That's not just the store. Um, oh, wow. <clears throat> Mind is blown. Wait, what is a billabong? I didn't look it up. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I'm assuming it says swamps, billabongs, creeks, and water holes. Um, they either look like a seal or a swimming dog or have a long, they're a long necked creature with many small heads. So just kind of a terrifying water creature. Wait, so it has multiple heads? Yes. It either looks like a seal or a swimming dog, or it has one really long neck and it has a lot of tiny heads. Oh. What's a billabong? Update. A billabong, noun, Australian, a branch of river, a branch of a river forming a backwater or stagnant pool made by water flowing from the mainstream during a flood. Oh my gosh, that makes sense, because it's like counterculture. That's Billabong. (laughs) (laughs) Flowing out of the mainstream. Oh, nice. Okay. Okay. Man, Melissa's on a different level. Shit. (laughs) Yeah, wait till you hear about this. So, generally, Kelpies are are associated with the fairy world and thought to be malevolent beings. Um, so when you think about like Celtic and Irish folklore, you know, fairies come up a lot. So it's kind of in that wheelhouse. So when you come across this creature, what you would typically see based on many of the stories is a powerful, beautiful black horse that's near or in a body of water. You will notice that the Kelpie's hooves are reversed. And some stories say that this, the the mane of the Kelpie, when it's in horse form, is just a bunch of serpents, which is kind of interesting. Um, Kelpies usually are bridled and saddled and ready to ride, so they look really enticing to a weary traveler or a young child who just wants to go for a ride. They're like, hey, that horse looks ready to go. You want to hop on it? You know, everything that you need to ride the horse is equipped on it already. Wow. Um, you, some people even hear the, the equine spirit sing your beautiful song, and it'll kind of lure you closer, like a siren. Is that kind of like, is a Kelpie kind of like a harpy? You know, I mean, the harpy is kind of like a siren? Um, probably like, are related. They like, are, like, I don't know. Maybe it's just the E at the end of the name, but they sound like, they sound like two related entities they probably are very related and there's and i don't go real into it but i did kind of already mention there's a lot of a lot of cultures have this like water spirit or like the spirit that lures you into danger so whether you're enticed by a melody or drawn in by the creature's beauty or just by sheer curiosity something will bring you closer and closer to the spirit when you approach the Kelpie, you may be tempted to pet it or even hop on its back for a ride. Um, the Kelpie can even extend the length of its back to carry many riders. Um, so you can bring all <laughs> can your you friends. Can you imagine? It's like those. It's like those. Um, those. You know those wagons that go around in the city where like everybody's like got their little thing, but it's the oh, beer party yeah. wagon. They're great for bachelorette parties. Yeah. <laughs> Is that right? Yes. <laughs> Did you guys do that? No. No. Okay. Good. I wasn't there, so I don't know why I said no. Um, but yeah, you can bring all your friends along if you want. Um, there's plenty of space. Uh, however, probably not the best place for a bachelorette party because 
um, it's not that safe. You don't want to be riding it. You need to be very careful. Um, although a beachside horse ride may sound amazing, there are many stories of children who, while trying to pet the neck of the Kelpie, they find themselves stuck to the Kelpie by their hand. Um, if you touch the Kelpie, your skin will fuse to the skin of the spirit Oof. and um, it will start to drag you into the water. <clears throat> there have been so, few... So it's oh, sorry. like a glue trap. Yes, it's a glue trap for people. You get enticed by this beautiful horse. You want to take a ride. You pet it. Your skin fuses to the skin of the spirit. There have been few people, however, that have been able to free themselves by cutting off their fingers or cutting off oh. their hand. So have you ever seen the... I think it was a book, too. But I remember it from my childhood as the movie Black Beauty. I think I read that book as a kid. Yeah, it's about a horse... That sounds very similar to what you're describing. Well, minus the whole, like, hand sticking to it and murdering people. But all I can think about is that, but this, like, weird, nightmarish version. (laughs) Yeah. Black Beauty Part 2. That's kind of what this is. It's a very creepy creature that, like, seems super inviting. And I'm sure there's horses everywhere in Scotland at this time. And, you know, you just want to ride one, but be careful to ride the wrong one. Yeah. Just don't don't go near a horse by the beach, I guess, is the yeah. moral of the story. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Because if you don't detach yourself, it's just going to drag you into the water and drown you. Oof. So. Nice. Um, yeah, I think I want to explain a little bit more of the shape-shifting qualities Please of do. a Kelpie. Um, like I said, they have the ability to transform into the appearance transform their appearance to look like a human you can usually tell someone is a kelpie by the water weeds stuck in their hair or based on um on some accounts the kelpie keeps its hooves when it's in a human form as well so that's where you kind of get that um tied to like satanism but later on like they draw back to some of these old stories of having backwards hooves or ha- wearing ho- half hooves a hooved human being, but we'll but get to it. do they have hooved feet and hooved and hooved hands? That I don't know. Sorry. I think I'm they asking... just meant the feet themselves, not like the hands. Okay, because but... that, yeah, I think I'm just asking two specific questions. No, I didn't even think about that, but I think it'd be really obvious if you went to shake their hand and it was a hoof. <laughs> um, so some of the stories that I read. <laughs> Some of the stories oh, I read talked about how a Kelpie would disguise itself as a quote-unquote wizened old man that mutters to itself, and it might be near a bridge or a body of water. Um, it'll be a rough-looking, shaggy old man, um, and he may just like sneak up a solitary rider, um, gripping them and crushing them or tearing them apart and devouring them. So could look like a creepy you know, homeless person, wanderer that can sneak up and grab you if you're going over a bridge or near a body of water. What does wizened mean? Just like, you know, when, when I picture wizened, I picture like Gandalf, but like... Like wizardly. Wizardly, a little scraggly, has the gray hair sticking up on end, never brushes its hair. I think it's kind of rude to judge people like that. This is um, this is quotes. I didn't. <laughs> um, this is just what the the kelpies are saying. All right, no, this on. is what people who encountered the kelpies. One report said it was a wizened old man. Man, well, maybe kelpies need more love. Well, some people tried to do that. Oh. Okay. Sometimes. Oh, let's hear how it turned out for them. Yeah. Sometimes a kelpie will look like a sexy person. 
<laughs> Is that oh. another quote? No. Um, <laughs> one folktale from a Scottish island, Barra, tells of a lonely Kelpie that transformed into a handsome man and that was determined to find a beautiful woman to become his wife. The lady he tried to woo recognized him as a Kelpie, probably from like the reeds in his hair. He still had gloves or something. Or the hooved handshake. Yeah, the hooved handshake. <laughs> um... <laughs> <laughs> Imagine but, you'd have to get people to like pick up your drink for you and like <laughs> give me a straw <laughs> to get a straw. Yeah, let me um, open that door for you. Oh, oh. oh. <laughs> oh. If I was a, if I was a kelpie and I was trying to introduce myself to someone and they tried to shake my hand, I'd keep my hose in my pockets and I'd say, "Oh, I've got a cold," and I'd go for the elbow mm. bump. You know what I mean? But yeah. every time. It'd be... Every time. And it, it would just become like my thing, you mm. know. Oh, that's Jake. He does the elbow bump thing. That's just mm. that's just his thing. He's always cool with his like, with his supposedly his hands in his pockets. Supposedly. Little do they know their hooves. <laughs> Hope somebody gives me a pat on the back so I can go drown him. <laughs> yeah, that would be easy. Get real friendly with people. <laughs> Get real friendly. Well, the thing is when you're in human form... Like your the skin doesn't fuse. It's only when you're there in a horse form. But I guess oh, okay. if you were like, okay. "Hey, come with me. I'm just your buddy Jake, and I ha- and you have your ha- paws and your your hooves in your paws. pocket, <laughs> and well, then you transform really fast. You could probably do a, yeah. a, a switcheroo. Mm. Let's go have a smoke outside the front of the bar. Here, right, right by the water. <laughs> right by the water. Um. Okay. Where was I? So this lady recognized that it was a Kelpie. So what she did is she waited till it was asleep and then removed a silver necklace, a necklace around its neck, which equates to the bridle that the Kelpie, when it's in horse form, would have on it. Um, so she removed the silver necklace and then it, the Kelpie immediately reverted to, to equine form. So then she took the creature to her father's farm and then she made the horse work for one year. So pretty much just captured it. She kept the silver necklace and then just, you know, made it work for her father. So after a year or so, she started to wonder what to do about the situation. Um, so she consulted with a wise man who advised her that she turn the necklace, return the necklace to the Kelpie. And then so she did. The Kelpie turned back into the handsome young man. The young woman was advised to give the Kelpie a choice, um, and the choice was to stay looking like the man and become mortal and live with her, live out his life with her, or to turn back into horse form and return to the ocean. But he decided to stay human and they got married. Wait, is this the plot of The Little Mermaid? But yeah, it is, isn't it? (laughs) Except 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 a a horse. As if Ariel was a man horse. And Eric oh, man. <laughs> was Sorry. just some woman who has a farm. Yeah. Yeah, we should make this a movie. Copyright. I guess. I guess. I guess. Yeah. Well. Anyways, we can keep going, but I, I just wonder yeah. if kelpies are related to mermaids or something. Interesting. Mm-hmm. That's where I. I think because this is a very general water spirit term, it can kind of apply to mermaids and other fairy type creatures as related to the water. Hmm. Um, and one famous <laughs> one we didn't talk about is. Most well-known Kelpie is a Loch Ness monster. Um, that's a Kelpie. Yeah, that's what oh. it's. It can be a very vague water spirit term, and it is kind of like horse-shaped. I mean, I don't know. Nessie. Yeah. Yeah. I thought he was a dinosaur. Never date someone named Nessie then. Yeah, that's it. What would Nessie even be short for? 
Vanessa. Vanessa. Oh, okay. Moving on. <laughs> nice. Duh. Finishing each other's sandwiches. <laughs> oh, God. Sorry, we just watched Frozen. Uh, moving on. Yeah. Traditionally, Kelpies, when they're in their human form, are male. Um, but much more recently, like 1895 and later, uh, the depictions of the Kelpie are dark-haired maidens balanced poolside on a rock. So there's a lot of depictions of like sculptures and and murals and stained glass. Um, so I think that kind of relates to the mermaid figure of the woman by the water who's kind of luring you. So water once side. so once Disney dropped the Little Mermaid, then they all became mermaid. Yeah, I guess. I mean, I think it, it in 1895. <laughs> Um, so females then, when a Kelpie is in a female form as a human, um, their beauty is used to lure lustful men to the watery doom. So mermaid related or, um, mm. that, what was the other thing you, like a harpy or like a, a harpy siren? Would, yeah. Harpies mm. and sirens. I think that's where this resonates and connects. Um, one story described a female Kelpie as a tall woman dressed in green and she jumped out of a stream and overpowered a man and a boy and kind of like attacked and killed them. So the story kind of started to change after the arrival of Christianity in Scotland in the 6th century. So when some folk stories and beliefs started to be just recorded by scribes and monks um, instead of what was done before that, which was just passing down um, the story verbally. So that's how it used to evolve before. At this point, they started to associate the Kelpie and its hooves, even in human form, with the Christian notion of Satan. And I have a little snippet of a poem by Robert Burns called Address to the Devil from 1786. And it has a lot of old-timey words, so forgive me. <laughs> when thou's dissolve the snawy horde and float the jiggling icy board, then water Kelpies haunt the fjord by your direction, and knighted travelers are allured to their destruction. Well done. I don't have a Scottish accent. Probably would have sounded a lot nicer, but yeah. And um, like I said before, the most well-known Kelpie is the Loch Ness Monster. Mm. Which... So the Loch Ness Monster is Satan, is what you're saying. Yes. Wow. <laughs> also, um, this is completely unrelated, aside from Robert Burns. Um, so... In undergrad, we celebrated Robbie Burns Day and ordered a haggis <laughs> online because that's part. I did not eat any because I am not brave enough. But um, <laughs> gross. I yeah, have to can, say, you can order. Well, the only like you can't get them in Rhode Island, so the only way that we could get one was ordering it online. So wow, we had a haggis shipped to the mailroom at the college. I gotta tell. I gotta tell you guys about the capture and killing of the kelpie. Oh, here we go. Okay. If a Kelpie appears without any reins or a saddle um, or a harness or bridle or any of the things, if you see like a naked horse, um, <laughs> you, can capture, you can capture it using um, a halter stamped with the sign of the cross. So if you, by halter, it means like any of those uh, accoutrements or whatever, you know, for the horse, whatever. I don't know horse stuff. So if you have like a saddle with the sign of a cross on it, you can like sling that on the horse. Um, on a kelpie when it's in horse form to capture it and then you can harness its strength which the kelpies have been recorded to have 10 times the strength of a normal horse so you're gonna get a lot of labor done 10 horsepower 10 horsepower (laughs) shit (laughs) yeah yeah so um 
The only thing is you need to be really careful because, like we said, Kelpies are dangerous. They drag people into the ocean, and they can also be vengeful. Um, there was a story of someone who caught a Kelpie, but then when the, he finally let the Kelpie go, he, I mean, the Kelpie decided he was going to curse him, and he ended up dying or his whole farm was destroyed. Some Kelpies are known to have a bridle or saddle already on them. Um, in order to exercise the Kelpie, you can remove the You mean the like saddle. exorcise? Like, yeah. Like demon style? Yeah. Yeah. And exorcism can be achieved by removing the bridle or the, the saddle. So when you take the bridle from the Kelpie, it has magical properties. And this is where that family said they took one from a Kelpie and it's been passed down for generations to this day. They still claim it's like from a real Kelpie. Um, so if used properly, you can turn a human into a horse or pony. So <laughs> you can really wreak havoc with this magical saddle um, if you steal it from a Kelpie. Um, similar to werewolves, Kelpies can be killed by being shot with a silver bullet, stabbed with an iron weapon, heated with in a fire, um, which then, once a Kelpie is killed, it turns into turf and soft jelly-like mass. So just kind of like gross like some plasma. Viscous. Yeah, like mossy <clears throat> slime on the ground. Nice. Like a, like a pile of jellyfish. Yeah. Like jellyfish in a blender. <laughs> it was just like a hundred jellyfish in a trench coat the entire time. Well, it's like it's like um, they make jello out of. <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> just reminded me of SpongeBob when like <laughs> all those jellyfish invade his house for the dance party. Oh yeah. I was just gonna say they make jello out of horses. Yeah. So. Oh my god. And glue. Yeah. Wow. Oh wow. Poor horses. Oh. So, origin and explanation. I do want to talk about, like, what does this story really mean? Why are we passing it down? Um, you know, what what is the purpose of passing the story down to children? Folklorist Gary Varner says that the origin of belief in water horses that preyed on and devoured humans may reflect the human sacrifices once made to appease gods of war. Um, the association with horses may have roots in horse sacrifices performed in ancient Scandinavia. So these stories were used to enforce moral standards. Um, creatures took retribution for bad behavior and carried out on Sundays. So, so a lot of the stories took place on Sundays when kids were doing things they weren't supposed to be doing. They would, you know, quote unquote, be punished um, by coming up dead or... Um, having to cut off their arms. So it was used as a story of warning. Um, Don't do anything on Sundays. You're not supposed to work or or whatever. Yeah, it's just so funny to me that demons are enforcing the Sabbath. Yeah. (laughs) Hmm. Wow. You can make them into whatever you want, I guess. Yeah, exactly. Or just don't ride horses on Sundays. Yeah. Well, I think it's supposed to be like, don't leave your home on Sunday, don't work, don't try to do, like, activities but also it relates to, you know, children don't stray too far away from home. It could be a way to rationalize or explain the drowning of children who accidentally fell into the deep, fast-flowing, turbulent water. Um, so also just a warning story of don't go in the water, don't stray too far from home when you're not supposed to, specifically on a Sunday. Charles Milton Smith, who is a historian and symbiologist, hypothesized that the Kelpie myth may originate from water spouts, water spouts that can form over the surface of Scottish locks. 
um, they can, they're just kind of like little bubbling bits and they can give the impression of something living moving across under the water. Um, and this phenomenon was described in an 1810 poem by Sir Walter Scott called Lady in the Lake. And I've got another poem for you. Here we go. Mm. Poetry hour. <laughs> he watched the... <laughs> Sorry. Wait, 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 wait. No, you can't snap? I can't snap. That's not bad. It's, Your hands need to be sweatier so that you get more traction. Oh, trust me, my hands are plenty Because <laughs> <laughs> I've noticed when my hands are dry, it like, just slips past. Okay, here's my poem. He watched the wheeling eddies boil till from their foam he his dazzled eyes beheld the river demon rise. So that's just, you know, one person's interpretation of what the, the, the little spouts are. Um, but yeah, just all in all, a cautionary, thought to be a cautionary tale of staying away from the water, um, a story told to children to keep them from wandering, or even to scare young women to be wary of young, attractive strangers. It's kind of just like a stranger danger story. Don't stray too far from home. Also, you know, don't do anything on Sunday. There you go. That's it. Ted Bundy the Kelpie. Sorry, that's all I got <laughs> about. Ted Bundy the Kelpie? <laughs> well, because you said as... A handsome ser- young man. It serves mm-hmm. as a warning to young women to beware the handsome young man. So all I, I'm sorry, all I could think about was Ted Bundy as a Kelpie. That's fine. I think with a lot of mythology and from what I've done research on with other ones, um, it, it seems to just be like a way to enforce moral values and code and like what's expected. Yeah. Um, like, it's all for the sake of the patriarchy, man. Trying to keep women in their place. That's what they're doing, man. Yeah. I thought they'd get more of a reaction. I'm sorry. All right, today I have brought for your consideration a little paranormal phenomenon called remote viewing. I don't know this. I I know this only because we are married and love each other. Inevitably, these things come up at dinner. So, <laughs> so. so this podcast is basically, basically just like an extension of like what we talk about. Uh, over a fine meal. Over a fine meal. Mm. Yeah. So, first of all, I, want, I just want to say, I got my info from Wikipedia, which was pretty good, um, and a TED Talk by Russell Targ, who is one of the scientists we'll talk about, and... Also, uh, the Reddit community r slash remote viewing and the website Gaia.com for the little how to in case you guys want to try this at home. Also, the Wikipedia page was like really skeptic, like very skeptic, like focused. Okay. So everything was alleged. Everything was like, you know, they reported this, but like scientists like disproved this or whatever. Uh, so, anyways, uh, if you read the Wikipedia page, I mean, it's a good source of, like, facts and stuff, but I, I recommend checking out the, um, our, the uh, TED Talk by Russell Targ, too, just to get sort of the other side as well. I mean, I'm not trying to be fair or balanced or even really trustworthy at all. <laughs> <laughs> That's not the point of this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> it's fine. Okay, so remote viewing is the alleged paranormal ability to perceive remote or hidden t- 
targets without support of the senses. In the early occult and spiritualist literature, remote viewing was known as telesthesia and traveling clairvoyance. So that's the Wikipedia sort of definition. Telesthesia, is it sensing, so just sensing things that are not connected to you? That are far away. Gotcha. Okay, yeah. that's the tele, and then the thesia is sensation, right? Okay. Yeah, yeah, telesthesia or traveling clairvoyance, it became known as remote viewing sort of mm. later in the 20th century. Okay. Brief overview. I put little subheadings in my notes. Me too. So here's a brief overview. Um, so, physicists Russell Targ and Harold Putoff were parapsychological <laughs> 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 researchers at the Stanford Research Institute. I mean, and they were they were physicists, so it wasn't like they were just got, guys who were just like wandered in and was like, hey, let's research paranormal stuff. I mean, Russell Targ was a, um, I know he was a laser, he would focus on laser engineering, which is very interesting. Interesting. So they, so they, uh, Targ and Putoff, are credited with um, coining the term remote viewing because at the time, so this is probably the late 60s, it was sort of seen as just a kind of clairvoyance and they were saying well this is a different thing than just clairvoyance this this can be sort of controlled and targeted and used to like actually reveal information about um coordinates places so so anyways yeah we'll get into it here because there's some cool stuff with like the military and the CIA and things. Oh, this is making me think of the movie The Men Who Stare at Goats. It's like a weird yeah, CIA yeah. situation. So that is referenced in here. Oh, okay, cool. Um, so at first they were supported with private funding, the Parapsychology Foundation and the Institute of the Noetic Sciences funded this work, but then they sort of made a pitch to the, I guess it was the DIA. I can't remember the exact title, but it was basically... It was like a research branch, uh, not branch, but like a research group associated with the military. But as an aside, real quick, the <laughs> the Wikipedia article cited this in order to sort of cast doubt on one of the guys, um, Putoff. They said Putoff was an active Scientologist prior to the, his work at um, SRI, and that's believed to, I guess influences research okay. so they're kind of saying you know he he's a wacko that believes all these wacky things how can you sort of take any of his work seriously okay and that he was um he believed that two followers of madame blavatsky were able to remote view the inner structure of atoms what? And so the followers were Annie Besant and C.W. Ledbetter wrote this book called Occult Chemistry, Investigations by Clairvoyant Magnification into the Structure of the Atoms of the Periodic Table and Some Compounds. Basically, these these two in the early 20th century were doing like rem, like in quotes here, remote viewing mm-hmm. um, to sort of like go inside atoms and see their structure and things. So they were using remote viewing as like a microscope. So <laughs> so the um, the Wikipedia article 
use that to say this guy's crazy, but I just thought it was awesome. It sounds so. so cool, but I'm just picturing, like, you see it in your head, but, like, how do you, what record is that for you? You know what I mean? They wrote a whole book with diagrams and things. So you so. see it in your head and then you just draw it? Yeah, I guess. Yeah, I don't know. Wow. I mean, obviously the book never took off and, and it's not really, like, reputable. Gotcha. It's, gotcha. like, pseudoscientific, but... My thought is... I thought it was interesting. Yeah, it's a cool concept. Yeah. I'm just wondering, like, you can see it in your head, but then what do you do if you're looking at atoms? Like, what do you do with that information? Other than just write it down. But it's, like, not a direct... I don't know. Well, I mean, it's, 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 it's basically, like, in lieu of, like, a really powerful microscope. Yeah. We're gonna... We're gonna remote view the inside of atoms and tell you about their structure. And at this point in history, there were no microscopes powerful enough to do so yeah i don't know okay i was just yeah, wondering like why not just use a microscope but right. i don't know why you could use a microscope when you can just use your mind yeah. well you can take pictures with a microscope can't you maybe you can take pictures with your mind where does it print out of <laughs> your hands your butt, when you drive. clearly <laughs> jesus <laughs> what did you say i said your butt clearly oh. <laughs> <laughs> okay so what's really interesting here is it was called the there was this there's this thing called the Stargate Project. SG one. Yeah. So, in in 1970, United States intelligence believed that the Soviet Union was spending a lot of money on psychotronic research, which is basically like psychological warfare. In response to claims that the Soviet had actually produced results. The CIA started funding a program known as Scanate, Scanate, S-C-A-N-A-T-E, which basically um, scanned by coordinate, which was a remote viewing research project. And this is kind of like the men who stare at goats. I haven't seen it, but like everybody that I've talked to about this has referenced that movie. Yeah. Is like loosely based on the Stargate project. Interesting. Yeah, I haven't seen the movie either, but it seems like it's a good one. So <laughs> and relevant. <laughs> yeah, very relevant. Um, so so Russell Targ and and Harold Putoff were doing lots of testing, lots of experiments for SRI, so the Stanford Research Institute. Some of the, I mean, the Wikipedia page seemed pretty dismissive. Like, there was, um, especially when there's a lot of, like, taxpayer money involved, they want to send skeptics to go disprove and debunk, mm -hmm. like, you shouldn't be investing time and energy into the stuff that produces no actionable results, whatever. Um, so, yeah, that could be, that could be part of it, but what's his name? Targ paints a much more positive picture. He said among some of the successes that they had were they located a downed Russian airplane in North Africa with code books on it. They located a kidnapped American general in Italy. They looked into a Soviet weapons factory in Siberia. They described the construction of a huge Soviet submarine in North Russia. And Pat Price, one of the psychics that they worked with, he was asked by the Berkeley Police Department to help them find a missing person. He picked the kidnapper out of a mug book that they had said that's him and then sent them to the exact location of the kidnap car wow. so i've been looking uh, at anna marie's face and she was very <laughs> shocked yeah well i'm just like as you're listing all of these things 
it's incredible. I'm one other thing I would want to know. These are the things they got right. How much did they get wrong? Probably a lot. Yeah. Yeah. And you Not know, Tark doesn't de- tell de- you that part. But if you go read the Wikipedia page, they'll they'll tell you. Melissa's yeah. one of the skeptics that they sent to yeah. Yeah. like statistics. Well, so they said somebody said something like, in order for it to be statistically important, they would need to have a sixty five percent hit rate. Has to be better than guessing, which yeah. is typically fifty percent. Right. Right. So uh, what's also interesting is that Pat Price used to train on a game that they had developed that would, where you would try to guess what image was going to light up before it lit up, and this would actually help you build your sort of like ESP muscle. Whoa. And this is available as an iPhone app now called ESP Trainer. Well, I know what I'm going to go <laughs> yeah. download now. So uh, go get ESP Trainer. Uh, open up your third eye. One of my new goals for 2020. <laughs> So eventually this, the project was sort of transferred over to the CIA. They wanted an evaluation of whether this was like a good appropriation of funds. Long story short, they essentially said that there was not enough, there was no actionable data or actionable information or intelligence that was produced by this. So that to me seems at odds with what Targ said they accomplished. So it seems like there's like some, something going on, some disagreement, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Which makes sense, you know, like behind the door, like sort of like office politics and and things like that, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, Who knows? I don't know what happened, but. Can I just mention? Yeah. This is reminding me of, you know, in the beginning of Ghostbusters, because they're basically scientists that study like ESP and, and whatever. Yeah. yeah. They're doing that, but he's cheating. What are the, you know, in the, the Ghostbusters basement <laughs> that they're doing this research, they're, you know, the, the research quality, right. the situation, it's not... Um, well, that's something, yeah, that's something that a lot of the skeptics or, or like debunkers pointed out was that the research methodology was too loose. Okay. Um... And there may have been like I didn't I didn't actually look at the documents right. that they were given. I mean, it was all set up to be double blind. Mm-hmm. Like essentially, what would happen is they would give a psychic some coordinates, and they would describe what they saw there, mm-hmm. and then there would be an envelope with the photograph of what was at the coordinates. And that was sort of the sort of test. Okay. Right? And uh, apparently the hit rate was, like, pretty decent Okay. on that. Or they would, um, the other way they would do it is they would track a target. So, for example, um, Russell Targ, the scientist, went on a road trip one time and told the psychics to follow him. And he was at in New Orleans at the I forget what it's called. Cafe du Superdome? No. The what smoothie the Smoothie King Center? <laughs> no. <laughs> Their stadium is the Smoothie King Stadium. The Superdome in New oh. Orleans. And he Close. described it looking as it looking like a UFO. Oh. Um and one of the psychics, one of their guesses was that he had been abducted by aliens. Oh, okay. <laughs> for wow. example. Um there's also this time that um, Pat Price, again, their one of their main psychics, was um, was they were they they were doing a test, and so they sent uh, a target to go 
hang out by a pool and they asked uh, Pat where he was and, and Pat described a water filtration plant. The thing is they went back and they found that 75 years earlier that location had been a water filtration plant. Okay. And so, so he's like, got his time frame. Yeah, wrong. exactly. Mm. So there's there's also some indication that you can do this outside of time too. Mm. And so they even are able that to. That gets tricky. It does. Yeah, it <laughs> seems like say, it does. Oh, You're in a oh, few different dimensions. Yeah. 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 Um, or like there will be in like 50 years. Yeah. <laughs> well, the other thing is um, one of the successes that Targ was saying that he. Uh, that they had where they predicted the outcome of a, of a Chinese nuclear bomb test or atomic bomb test um, three days ahead of time. So oh. it seems like things you can see into the past, see into the future, see in different locations. Mm-hmm. The theory that Targ says, he says, he says that um, remote viewing is not like a spiritual path per se, mm-hmm. but it can make it apparent to you that your essence is a naked awareness that is beyond time and space. Right, which is a very like spiritual insight, and so he he was saying remote viewing, like you know they've been they were marketing it as like utilitarian, like it's a tool that you can use. Psychic abilities mm-hmm. don't depend on you being like a spiritual person; yeah. they just depend on you developing your mm-hmm. psychic abilities, mm-hmm. right? But at the same time, the th- the way that remote viewing works has led him to sort of conclude that like our essence is this awareness that is like beyond space and time. And that, that can be yeah. like a big spiritual realization. So another funny, <laughs> funny thing with, with targets, he said that in the eighties, he and a group of buddies that were doing uh, remote viewing, I guess were doing it for silver futures. What's that? Which is basically just like seeing the price of silver go up or down. Oh, okay. And then yeah, they like, made it. Okay. <laughs> that, like yeah. Stock. And then they made $120,000 in the 80s on silver. (laughs) (laughs) So so clearly not a spiritual path. Clearly he's, you know. He's in it for the the goods. Um, (laughs) Not the good, but the goods. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. (laughs) Toward the end of the um, Stargate project, they had two... um, experts kind of evaluate the the overall efficacy and one said quote psychologists such as myself who study subjective validation find nothing striking or surprising in the reported matching of reports against targets in the stargate data the overwhelming amount of data generated by the viewers is vague general and way off target the few apparent hits are just what we would expect if nothing other than reasonable guessing and subjective validation are operating so that was one. Okay, okay. I'm on board with this one. Another one said, quote, No one who has examined all of the data across laboratories taken as a collective whole has been able to suggest methodological or statistical problems to explain the ever-increasing and consistent, resu- consistent results to date. Basically saying, there's no way to explain the data that has emerged from the Stargate project other than saying that there is some sort of ESP or psychic ability like at play. Okay. Right. So two people looking at the same data, probably both biased one way or the other. Okay. Giving you d- different um, 
And I wonder too ideas if, of the Stargate project. Yeah, and I wonder too if they're like, how much are they using the same psychics, and are they getting better at answering these types of questions? Because yeah. there's bias of being, you know, doing in any psychological test, like having done it before, yeah. you can become better at it or figure out what types of answers that they're looking for. So it's funny they had. Pat Price was one psychic. They also had one. I forgot her name. So they were repeating some psychics mm-hmm. over time. And they had and they had six. They basically wanted to start. They wanted to start like a psychic army corps, like <laughs> army. I want to join. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, they they just wanted they wanted to train some military personnel to be able to do this. Gotcha. Um, and. Like I said, you know, they were playing these games and stuff to, like, train their mm-hmm. ability. Well, they brought in somebody as, like, a control group mm-hmm. against Pat Price, their psychic. So was this a regular person, not a psychic? Just a regular person okay. off the street. And that person apparently became much better at... Had a much more success and a lot more hits. Okay. And eventually got really good at, at uh, remote viewing. So then that so. would make me think... As an objective person who has done psychological research before, are you, with this training, are you training them to be better at ESP or are you training them to be better at this test? I don't know. Just something to think about. I don't know. The, I mean, the, the, the thing, the, one of the things about it sort of theoretically is that it's not that some people can do this and other people can't do it. Yeah. It's that it's an innate ability, and you just have to learn how to, like, work with it. Gotcha. Or some people don't even have to learn how to work with it. Some people can just do it. Okay. But. So, what I'm really hung up on is, or are these games here? Yeah. Did you download the app? No. <laughs> but I'm just thinking, though, we should have a game night. And a psychic game night. A psychic game night, <laughs> not tell anyone, and then build our own psychic army. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. Every Thursday night. Sounds good. Be there, psychic be Psychic game night. Okay. So, yeah. Come in, so, in. <laughs> Great. So, so just, just to be clear, like, yeah, they had those games that Pat used to play, the, Pat Price right. used to play the game, mm-hmm. um, but what they were doing was just controlled experiments to either hone in on a set of coordinates Mm -hmm. and be able to say what's there yeah or follow a target and be able to say like what kind of setting the target is in gotcha right so of course there's a reddit community devoted to remote viewing and so i just want to read a little bit from r slash remote viewing um this is from their about page so it's a pretty good little overview and apparently there's also uh, an International Remote Viewing Association, Aww. which defines... <laughs> Is that so cute? cute. <laughs> so cute that they came together as an international community. Which defines remote viewing as... Remote viewing is a mental faculty that allows a perceiver or a viewer to describe or give details about a target that is inaccessible to normal senses due to distance, time, or shielding. For example, a viewer might be asked to describe a location on the other side of the world which he or she has never visited, or a viewer might describe an event that happened long ago, or describe an object sealed in a container or locked in a room, or perhaps even describe a person or an activity all without being told anything about the target, not even its name or designation, end quote. R slash remote viewing goes on to say, 
What makes remote viewing different from clairvoyance is the use of a protocol. Simply put, protocols are clear rules that define what and if remote viewing has occurred uh, and what the results are. So the protocols follow four steps. One, it is planned and targeted using a uh, blind, blind coordinate system. Random insights or feelings out of your control are not part of remote viewing. Two, the data obtained during the session is recorded in some format. Three, it's double blind. You and anyone present during the session cannot know the target. Four, you get feedback to know if you're right or not. So like that. So the feedback to know if you're right or not, I think that's one of the things that's holding me up because you're getting feedback like you're on the right track. You know what I mean? That's one thing that... You would get feedback psych- after the session's okay. over. Okay. So after the, the double blind over. initially right. where they, so, the person you're saying, there's a water treatment plant, they have no idea if that's right or wrong. They'll just write it down for you or they'll tell you the coordinates. So what would happen is somebody, so somebody not in this room, mm-hmm. let's say, let's say Anne-Marie was the remote viewer and we were sort of the interviewers or like taking stock of the thing. Nobody here would know what was at the coordinates. Okay. Somebody else would give me or you an envelope with the photograph or the feedback, right? Mm -hmm. And then somebody else would get the, the other person, you, would get the coordinates. You would give Anna Maria the coordinates. Anna Maria would say what she saw, draw it out, write it out, whatever. And then we would open the envelope and check the check against the results. You see what I mean? (laughs) So that nobody in the experiment in the room, Mm -hmm. I mean, somebody obviously knows because somebody's setting up the experiment, but nobody that's present actually knows what's in the envelope or, or whatever. And the coordinates don't actually follow like global coordinates. It's a different coordinate system. Okay. It seems like so that way that's, she wouldn't know. That's oh, I, I kind of have about. memorized the globe or memorized the general way, you know. Okay, that was what I was thinking about: is would they get better at being good at this test from doing it over time and having the opportunity between sessions to yeah. get more information about the coordinates of the planet and kind of say this longitude is going to be whatever latitude, but if it's its own system. Yeah, but you're doing things like, for example, um, at a certain coordinate. They might want you to describe the gas station that's there. You oh, know? okay. You see okay. what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Or like describe like the river. Okay. So it's so I haven't done a lot of stalking around on R slash remote viewing, but okay. basically mo- most every post is just a set of coordinates and it's like a test oh. for people to like test their own remote viewing right. stuff. We would like our viewers to go test themselves. <laughs> yeah, go. <laughs> um, okay. Get yourself tested. So these protocols were developed by these... I'm still reading off of r slash remote viewing. Okay, good. These protocols were developed by the Stanford Research Institute, which are the guys was, we were talking about mm-hmm. earlier. Um, after years of trial and error to define what remote viewing was and to make it scientifically testable. If you don't follow the protocols, then you're not remote viewing. Use a system, especially in the remote viewing sub... sub That's short sub for Reddit. subreddit... <laughs> Uh, Thank you. I'm too old to understand that. <laughs> uh, yeah, use it in the sub. It leads to results that you can verify for yourself. 
to yourself to demonstrate that there's something to remote viewing. A nice benefit of this is that if you post nothing more than a target ID, you can't be trolled. It's true. Okay, I'm going to read the sort of how-to from Gaia.com. All right. So here's how to do your own remote viewing. Yes. Friends and listeners at home. Hell yeah. And Anne-Marie and Melissa. We're listening. So number one, select a range of targets. Ask a friend or a family member, a.k.a. Remote, a remote viewing assistant, <laughs> to select five or ten pictures. Ask them to cut the images from the magazines and paste them on sheets of blank white paper with one picture per sheet. The images should be real-world pictures such as people, architecture, nature, etc. Ask them not to pick a target picture that may be offensive or disturbing. Oh, that's good to clarify in the beginning. (laughs) That's that's thoughtful, I guess, yeah. I guess someone who wrote that has been tricked, maybe. Yeah. Yeah, from experience. Not good ones. (laughs) Hmm. Two, ask your assistant to put the images in an envelope. Uh, I don't think I need to read the description of that. We got that one. Okay. (laughs) Open up the envelope. (laughs) Lick it shut. (laughs) Seal it. Mail it. (laughs) Number three, quiet your mind. You want as little mental noise as possible, as if that's just like an easy thing to do, right? Yeah. Number four. Just shut it down. (laughs) Just completely shut down. (laughs) (laughs) Number four actually says let go. Okay. Write down the date, time, and any ideas you want to let go of that may distract you while viewing. Okay. Now we're, now we're really doing it. Step five. Call the first target to mind. So you begin the session by describing the most basic impressions you have of the first target site, event, or person. What do you feel is the predominant thing in the target? Is it natural or artificial? Surrounded by land or water? Write several descriptors down. Six. Do not second guess yourself. Write down the first thing that comes to your mind. The fainter, the better. Just make sure that you write down the information as descriptively as possible and don't judge anything. Seven, connect the dots unconsciously. Information is coming from your mind and autonomic nervous system. The idea is that the unconscious already knows everything there is to know about the target. It just has to communicate that to your conscious mind. It does that through your body with very subtle sensations and feelings. Eight, describe the basics, right? So, using the five senses. Nine, draw a sketch of the target. Ten, find a bird's eye view. So, look at the target from overhead. Mm -hmm. Is there anything surprising about the target there? Eleven, end the session. So, you write down the time and a brief summary of everything that you perceived. Twelve, get feedback. So, you pull the top photo from the envelope and see how you did. 13, review and repeat. If you didn't connect with anything in the photo, don't despair. The main point of remote viewing is to learn about yourself. That actually doesn't sound right to me. It sounds like the point of remote viewing is to disclose information about a hidden target, but anyways. Maybe they mean like learn (laughs) about how you do it. I don't know. Oh, I see. Yeah, like yeah. How your your psychic processes are working. Yeah. Your own abilities. That's actually, that's cool. Yeah. Yeah. That's but probably I, right. You're learning about yourself, the remote viewer. Yes, like okay. how you remote view. That makes sense. But also you are learning about random things that you're <laughs> trying to see. And then you repeat this process for all of the all of the um, 
targets in the envelope. Um, so how long does it typically take? I don't know. It could be any number of time. Because it's said to record the start and end time. Just wondering if that was significant. Maybe just for your own learning. I, yeah, about I yourself. think you're just trying to. I think you're just trying to be as uh, empirical as possible there. Okay. Um, oh, step fourteen. Let go of being right. Most importantly, have fun. Oh. That's good. See, psychic game night. Yeah. The point is to have fun. <laughs> so, that is uh, my my spiel on remote viewing. Very wonderful. Cool. Never heard of it, but I think. Never heard of the term, but I think it kind yeah. of read, like it reminds me of a lot of things I've heard of. But it's yeah. interesting to hear about research that was done, funded by the government. Yeah, kind of cool. Government's into a lot of weird stuff, guys. What else is out there? Yeah. This made me wonder, like, I know there was drug testing. Um, yeah, they were using LSD to try to do mind control and stuff. Yeah, I wonder if there's any overlap with drugs in this type of realm or if that's completely separate. But that just made me think of, hmm. would that enhance your abilities to do any of these things? I don't know. Maybe eventually we'll Listeners find out. Find out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if any of y'all are tripping in remote viewing, give us your uh, feedback. Mm-hmm. DM us. <laughs> All right. All right. Okay. Great. So... I'm going to take it in a completely different direction. You're going to zag where I zigged? Hell yeah. You're going to yuck where I yummed? No, I never (laughs) yuck where anyone yums. That's good manners. Yes. (laughs) 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 You look like you're going to explode. (laughs) Henry, what's your topic? (laughs) (laughs) Um, So this one's very close to home. Uh being from Massachusetts, so I'm going to talk about the New England vampire panic. Oh. Um, Is it like Twilight? Okay, I'll shut up. <laughs> yeah, get out of here. That's <laughs> Seattle, I think, right? Oregon? <laughs> oh, yeah. Or Washington yeah. State or something? That's the Northwest, not the Northeast. That's it, Anyway, so my sources are pretty sparse. This time around, we got Wikipedia, of course. Classic. Yay. Classic. And an article from Smithsonian Magazine. Whoa, hoity-toity. Yeah. Ooh, I know. Pinky's up for this one, guys. <laughs> um, so, <laughs> the New England Vampire Panic was a response to an outbreak of tuberculosis throughout New England. Consumption? Um, yes. <laughs> Specifically... Rhode Island, Eastern Connecticut, Vermont, as well as other nondescript areas of New England, they never really specify, in the 19th century. So tuberculosis began to spread throughout New England in the 1730s, just a few decades before this vampire panic. And by the time the panic rose, tuberculosis became the leading cause of death in that area. So, although the tuberculosis bacterium had been identified in 1882, this information wouldn't have spread into the more rural communities uh, for some time, and even then, there wasn't any cure until the 1940s. But cures, until then, were things such as drinking brown sugar dissolved in water. Oh, I'd drink that. Yeah, or frequent frequent horseback riding. Oh. Yeah. which That was supposed to cure TB? I guess. Or, I'm, like, treat it? <clears throat> yeah, it was supposed to... Is it because the air is clearer up there? <laughs> up on the horse. Yeah, isn't that, wasn't that also a thing? Like, go get some fresh air, and you're right. just going to go to the countryside? Well, because, yeah, people yeah. would move to, like, you know, in Asheville, where right up in North Carolina, around where I grew up, 
um, people would move there if they were diagnosed with TB to like get fresh mountain air. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I just know that happened um, because I had an un- unhealthy obsession with John Keats for a while and he mm. had tuberculosis. <clears throat> he also went to Italy when he was yeah. uh, diagnosed for that same reason. I'm just saying it might be, healthier. you know, you're tall, I'm tall. We know how it is when, when shorter people come up to us and say, How's the weather up there? Mm, yeah. How obnoxious. So, yeah, yeah so, right? <laughs> so basically, if we ever get TB, we're going to be fine. Yeah, I Because guess. the air is... Because we're, we're at a different altitude. <laughs> yep. Man, all of my middle school traumas are just coming back. Um, which... <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. Sorry to re-traumatize you. <laughs> it's okay. But honestly, thinking about drinking brown sugar water and... Um, Riding on horses basically sounds like all of my dreams as a, <laughs> as a middle school girl. So sounds like something uh, like the brown sugar just sounds like something a, a bee should be doing or like, a, a butterfly's diet. It's just like flat coke. I, I guess. All right. So tuberculosis, also known as consumption, uh, at the time appeared to consume the body of the person who was infected um it was really interesting to kind of connect all those dots because i never had i was always like why why did people call tuberculosis consumption well there we go so it's connected (laughs) (laughs) nice hell yeah (laughs) can cross that goal off my 2020 list connect the dots that was one of your between tuberculosis and consumption that's one of your New Year's resolutions this year. I'm going to connect the dots. <laughs> to tuberculosis and consumption. Okay, yeah. all right. Very specific goal and achieved. Yes, exactly. Smart goals. So now tuberculosis is known to be a bacterial disease, but this wasn't known until the late 19th century, um, which is really around the time and just after our story here takes place. So just to give a little bit more context of the disease itself, uh, according to the Mayo Clinic, getting real medical here. I um, love Mayo. Oh, yeah, man. <laughs> Take me to that Mayo Clinic. <laughs> Some Chipotle Mayo. Mm. Mm. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> so symptoms of active TB <laughs> include coughing that lasts more than three weeks, coughing up blood, chest pain or pain when breathing or coughing, Unintentional weight loss, fatigue, fever, night sweats, chills, and loss of appetite. So the body was visibly also wasting away, so it's easy to see how someone without the understanding of this disease could think someone or something was literally draining the life out of them. Mm-hmm. Also kind of reminds me of like when people are possessed, what we see in movies kind of matches up with that description. Mm, yeah. Yep. Very similar. Tuberculosis was easily contracted, so inevitably it would spread to other members of a family if one person was diagnosed. So one family member would die of consumption, and then another person would show symptoms and gradually lose their health as well. So it was just kind of this chain within the family. Tuberculosis is spread through tiny droplets in the air that are released when the person with the disease coughs and or sneezes. So... I'm just thinking about when we were sick last week. <laughs> there was no escaping mm, the sickness. Mm. So imagine being in an even smaller space with more people. It's bad and news. everyone's sick. And everyone's sick. Yeah. You're basically screwed from the nasty. beginning. Nasty. Yeah. yeah. Pretty gross. This world is nasty. Yeah. Pretty, pretty gross. Pretty gross. 
So because people during this time didn't understand the causes of tuberculosis, they believed that the dead came back to consume the life of the living. Uh, They believed one family member who died from tuberculosis would come back from the dead to feed off their living family members who would then start showing signs of the disease. So the bodies of the suspect quote-unquote vampires uh, were exhumed and examined And if they were considered to be a vampire, the townspeople would then perform various rituals to stop them from coming back. So a corpse was typically accused of being a vampire if it was unusually fresh, especially if the heart or organ still contained liquid blood. Um, And some examples of the rituals that people performed um, to stop the vampires were things like turning the body over in its grave burning the fresh internal organs and reburying the body, decapitation, although this was a less uh, frequently observed ritual, and then sick members of the family would also inhale smoke from the freshly burned organs, or they'd consume the ashes in an attempt to cure their consumption. Good, good, good. Yeah, delicious. So facing towards the... Facing down was... What was the purpose of that? Like flipping it upside down? Just flip it over? I guess maybe to disorient them if they tried to emerge from from the ground. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, and also, to be clear, it was unlikely that the families affected would actually use the term vampires um, because it wasn't a common word in New England at the time. Yeah, it's kind of rude. <laughs> what? <laughs> Call somebody a vampire? I, I mean, yeah. I mean, they're dead, though. Yeah, but it's like your family. Yeah. You don't want to call them a vampire. That's rude. Well, no, exactly. I think that's a European thing, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, so the the term was used by newspapers and people... What? I was just joking. Oh. <laughs> I thought it was funny. <laughs> oh. <laughs> not funny. <laughs> my, my jokes are not hitting today. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. getting a real kick out of them. Though. I'm sorry. If you laugh, maybe we'll laugh too. <laughs> We'll laugh at you laughing. I don't want to get started laughing. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we don't want that. Okay, Okay, sorry. Go ahead. So, yeah, the term vampires was used uh, mostly by newspapers and people outside of these communities that were actually affected um, because of the similarities between what the people affected described as what was happening and what people in Eastern Europe described as vampires. They kind of... Again, connected those dots. When did Bram Stoker write his his uh, thing? Is that coming that. up? That's okay, coming. sorry, sorry, yeah. sorry. We're just we're so connected. Those Men- connecting those dots mentally. <laughs> connecting those dots. That's what I meant. Connecting the dots <laughs> between tuberculosis and consumption. Is that our new nicknames? <laughs> yes. All right, dots connected. Is thought that the belief in vampires was brought over by immigrants from Eastern Europe, uh, since the legend itself originated in Slavic Europe in the 10th century, and this is where the word vampire was first um, was first used. Although there are quite a few cases documented from newspaper clippings and other documents from the 19th century, the most well-known cases are those of Mercy Brown and Frederick Rans- Ransom, um, which I'm going to talk a little bit about here. Um, So we'll start with Frederick Ransom because there's just less information on his story. So Frederick, our friend Frederick, was from South Woodstock, Vermont. How Ransom. How? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) 
His life was held ransom by the, <laughs> the oh vampires. Stop it. <laughs> Can't stop. Won't stop. Stop. <laughs> Go ahead. <Anne-Marie>. Okay. <laughs> All right. So uh, he was the son of a well-to-do family and attended Dartmouth College. So well-educated. Ooh, smart, smart. Smart, smart. Um, but he died of tuberculosis on February 14th, Valentine's <gasps> Day of 1817 at the age of 20. Um, so his father was worried that Frederick would come back from the dead to attack his living family. So he had his son's body exhumed and the heart burned on a blacksmith's forge. So apparently, since the practice of folk medicine was still pretty common in South Woodstock, uh, the burning of the organs gathered hundreds of onlookers from the town. Um, so in some towns, these organ burning rituals were seen as huge public events where people would torch a heart on the town green real casually. Um, (laughs) and in other cases, someone would at an altar conduct the heart burning ceremony as they called it and demand the quote demon vampire to leave the corpse and stop consuming the life of the living. So it was quite festive. That sounds amazing. (laughs) Why don't they bring that back? <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> Just kidding. I'm not being serious. I'll think you had to clarify. Okay. You never know. You never know. So, and what makes this story so unusual is the Ransom family's status. It's more likely, or I'm sorry, it's more unlikely for a wealthy, well-to-do family to come under attack from the vampire, this kind of vampire panic. And why, um, why is that? It just... Are we less exposed to tuberculosis because they have nicer, bigger houses. No, it was just that. So <clears throat> I think it's or they're taller. <laughs> Maybe they're taller. It's like the difference between Pawnee and Eagleton. Maybe. They're just wealthier, so it's above them to have a vampire. Exactly. Okay. Um, they're better than that. <laughs> yes. Uh, no, but I th- I think it's um, I mean it it ended up occurring more frequently and like more rural less educated okay uh towns um oh you mean like the superstition the superstition yeah Yeah. so because science around tuberculosis and other illnesses were still being developed so it's not like people just had no idea that you know things like tuberculosis are caused by bacteria but it seems like the ransoms they were they were educated they weren't superstitious, but they may have been a little stitious. <laughs> Get out of here. Get out of here. Yes. No. Oftentimes, the cause of tuberculosis was actually diagnosed as drunkenness or, quote, the want among the poor. So. The want? The want. So. Really blaming it on those. <clears throat> yeah, their lack, their lack yeah. of resources. Hmm. So just. Poverty shaming, man. Yeah, yeah. It's so really cool. upsetting. And one of those families was the Brown family. So this Mercy Brown vampire incident, as it's called, took place in Exeter, Rhode Island in 1892. And I have to pause here for a moment to explain how I even came to know about this case. There was one time where I was back at home um, in Massachusetts, and on one of the local, like, PBS channels, there was this 
it was like local hauntings or something like that was some some weird paranormal show with terrible effects like those 90s effects and like that camera that just like swoops down like yes, toward, i can visualize this yeah like down towards the ground like through a cemetery and like weaving in and out between like smoke everywhere yeah exactly like ten dollars to make that shot yes yeah. exactly and that's why it was on public television <laughs> at like 10 p.m on a tuesday night um but they were talking about Mercy Brown and the paranormal experiences that still happen at her gravesite. Real good local Rhode Island television nice. for you. Yeah, I don't I don't remember anything from that. So Exeter was seen as a border town without much farming potential. Um, basically, there were just lots of rocks everywhere. And it was sparsely populated uh, so much so that it basically just looked like a ghost town, which is not a joke. It was <laughs> just... No one was Should around. Should have called it Vampire Town. Vampire Town, yeah. Everyone's living underground, and then they come up at night for some parties. Mm. Some organ-burning parties. Count me in. <laughs> so the Brown family, who lived just on the edge of town, began to show signs of tuberculosis. The mother of the family, Mary Eliza, was the first member of the family to die from the disease. Then the eldest daughter, Mary Olive, died in 1886. Next, Edwin, the son, started showing signs of tuberculosis. So Mercy, who the family also called Lena, did not show signs of tuberculosis until about a decade after her mother and sister died. Uh, So it was believed that her tuberculosis was the galloping kind, meaning that she had probably been affected all that time, but didn't show any actual symptoms until much later. But this, of course, caused her to progress very quickly once it was apparent that she had the disease. So Mercy then died January 1892 at the age of 19, and then Edward was just like, I'm getting out of here and going to Colorado Springs where the air is much thinner and clearer, um, Mm. with the hope that the climate would improve his health. So Edwin eventually did return to Exeter after his illness progressed to the point where he was basically about to die. Um, But the people in the town still believed that his health would be restored. So when this was... People of faith. People of faith, yep. But when this was not the case, rumors emerged that one of the brown women was not actually dead, but instead feasting on, as the Providence Journal, or the Projo, as the locals call it, um, was feasting on the living tissue and blood of Edwin. It just feels... I mean, so it's all women that died, but like... That feels a little sexist to me. Yeah. It feels a little misogynistic to me. Yeah. It's like, hmm. You know? Those those brown women. What is um, Jimmy Buffett to say? He says, uh, some people say there's a woman to blame. So George Brown, who is the father of the family, didn't believe this to be the work of a vampire, but was still persuaded to give permission to exhume several of the family members' dead bodies um, really due to social pressures. And at that time, he was just dealing with so much more with his, basically his whole family passing away and his sick son. He was just like, whatever, fuck it. Um, the local <laughs> doctor, along with the villagers and newspaper, finally exhumed the bodies on March 17th, 1892. So basically, Mercy died in January and then was exhumed in March. So just keep that date range in mind two, two months. months later yeah. yeah see we can do it we can do nice. it. high five nice we can do math great well done 
Um, um, so when they exhumed the bodies, they saw that Mary Eliza and Mary Olive's bodies had decomposed pretty highly, and they were basically just bones at that point. But Mercy, only being dead for a few months during the winter in New England, had barely decomposed. Yeah, no shit. Yeah. Ground frozen. Yeah, exactly. You basically put her in a fridge. Yes, exactly. So during an impromptu autopsy on the grass of the cemetery, uh, the heart and liver were removed and clotted blood was found when the heart was cut open. Um, So this was taken as a sign that Mercy was in fact a vampire. Uh, so the townspeople then took Mercy's heart and liver, burned them on a nearby rock, just still. This is like just one after another, like exhuming mm. the body, autopsy. Oh, we just got to burn those organs. Burn, yeah, burn those organs. all those organs out, burn them. Yeah. Um, just on a nearby rock over Get there. Get them burnt. And then mix... Get them crispy. <laughs> yeah, 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 well. And then mix the ashes with water, and then they gave them to Edwin to drink. Okay. To help cure him. How's Edwin doing now? Nasty, man. Well, I'm glad you asked. Uh, This, unsurprisingly, did not help Edwin, and he died less than two months later. So ashes don't help. Exactly. Ash tea. Burned, dead human flesh does not help. Yeah. Take that. Mayo Clinic. Isn't there... Is there not any, like, taboo against cannibalism in, like, that would prevent... Because, like, I mean, drinking somebody's ashes is cannibalism, right? Yeah. And am I missing a clause where it says if you do it in a tea, it's okay? Maybe it's a, at that point they just don't see this as a human being, but as a monster that is killing yeah. the people in their community. That could be. And that there are cultures, it. too, that consume like important organs like hearts or liver or like a tongue of someone that they love to absorb some sort of like thing from them so it's not yeah but is rhode island one of those cultures though that's what I, i'm that, saying i don't know but <laughs> i don't think so this, but i know this, they're weird but right but at this point in history a lot of these people come from europe in some way at least a couple of generations so who knows if this just idea yeah. right okay in well, general i don't know it seems like it's just part of this particular superstition that is just unrelated to cannibalism so like that doesn't even seem to be on the radar. I'm just trying to say. That's I, fair. I'm just saying, That's if I was there. one of those people of faith, I would just raise the issue and mm. say, look, you're going to do what you're going to do, but just remember, you're drinking your friend. Yeah. But I think this is, that side of it is more of the, like, the druidic or whatever. Yeah. Healing. Well, but, and so, but another point that's similar to this is that. For these communities that were just overcome by panic, and of course it is in somewhat, in some ways anachronistic, and especially by onlooker, onlookers outside the community, they were seeing this as just superstition rather than, you know, like, oh, they're not paying attention to the facts, right? Mm-hmm. But for them, this felt like their last hope. I mean, tuberculosis, yeah. once someone was infected... Everyone was infected. Yeah, well, and they knew it was incurable, unpreventable, highly contagious, and just relentless. Like, it just... So, this was literally their only hope. So, Mm -hmm. it just provided them with that sense of comfort, I think. Which is weird, because it's not really a comforting thing. (laughs) Yeah. But they were desperate. Yeah. Fair enough, fair enough. But also, Melissa, going back to your point, the spiritual climate of the time was kind of weird, too. Mm -hmm. Um, Especially in Rhode Island. Uh... Well, Rhode Island itself was full of religious dissenters, so only about like ten percent of people attended church. Really? Yes. In Rhode Island. Yeah. 
That's interesting. Yeah. That's cool. They're kind of punk. Yeah, they kind of are. They're, they're, it's a weird little state, but I do. A I have speck a, of a state. A speck of, <laughs> a weird speck of a state. <laughs> but they got a lot of heart. <laughs> um, and then they eat the heart. <laughs> oh, nice. <laughs> exactly. So that sounds like Rhode Island to me. <laughs> so rather than organized religion, people believed in like magical springs with healing powers dead bodies that bled in the presence of their murderers. Uh, people buried shoes by the fireplace to help catch the devil if he tried to come down the chimney. People also nailed horseshoes mm-hmm. above doors to ward off evil. Again, coming back to the horses. Horses are significant. Yeah, really. Wow, what's <clears throat> happening? But yeah, so it did, again, like that influenced this very superstitious response to tuberculosis. Yeah. But it just like it ended up just causing this mass hysteria and then which of course just like the panic feeds off of panic and it just grows and grows until people are exhuming the bodies of their dead loved ones and yeah. consuming their organs. I mean you said it best, they're desperate. Yeah. Unless Oh boy. <laughs> they're vampires. <gasps> the people in the town? Wait, what? I'm sorry. The bo- the unless they're actually vampires. Oh, unless they actually are vampires. Yeah. Then those people were right all along. Yeah. So, yeah. who are we to say? Who am I to say? Yeah. I don't know. Um, Everybody has their own truth. And everyone's a vampire. <laughs> the wor- Dare I say the world is a vampire. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> okay, anyway. Back- Cue up uh, bullet with butterfly wings here. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. Keep moving on, man. <laughs> Smashing pumpkins. I don't know. The world saying. is a vampire. Dun, 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 dun. Okay, some of All our right. people will get it, so we should leave that joke in there. I won't. All right, so, and lastly, since we are talking about vampires, of course, we need to bring up Dracula. Yes. Um, uh, so I read something that said that in 1896, a clipping from the New York world found its way into the hands of one Bram Stoker of course, wrote Dracula, which was published in 1897. So some people believe that there wouldn't have been enough time for these stories to actually influence the Dracula manuscript. But others see Lena, or Mercy, uh, in the character of Lucy, who's a teenage girl who begins to mysteriously just kind of waste away and demonstrate consumption-like symptoms. Um, And she turns into a vampire and then is later exhumed in the novel. So... Who knows? Might be a connection, maybe not. And then also just to give a little update on, I guess, where Mercy is today. Um, How's she doing? How's she doing? Uh, She's, well, she's resting peacefully now. Still in Chestnut Hill Cemetery in Exeter, Rhode Island. And people visit her grave and leave little offerings like plastic vampire teeth. (laughs) That seems kind of messed up. this This is even worse. And cough drops. Oh, no. I don't understand. Because she died from tuberculosis. Oh. Yeah. That's mean. <laughs> I know. But then someone also once left a note that said, you go, girl. So that's oh. kind of sweet. I guess that makes up for it. I we mail maybe. something to the cemetery and they can find out for it. <laughs> to Mercy Brown. <laughs> yeah. So, right so that's the story of the New England vampire panic and Frederick Ransom and Mercy Brown. So Cool. Vampires in America. This Man. just really made me want to watch Supernatural for some reason. It really made me want to watch Vampires Kiss. 
<laughs> that too actually Nick Cage taking it to level 10 yeah well basically the pla- like once I saw plastic vampire teeth I'm a vampire <laughs> <laughs> exactly <laughs> but he just like buys the plastic vampire teeth from the store and puts them in his mouth and it's like <laughs> and just hisses at the camera <laughs> so it's my favorite part I love that movie um, but oh, anyway man. so wow. that's that nice, nice. find us on instagram at weird obscure podcast and you can find us on twitter at weird obscure pod no cast no cast just just pod, pod. <laughs> all right and we'll and, <laughs> and break and scene see ya <laughs> bye bye